Today I want to talk with you from God's Word and from the series in 1 Corinthians that we are in about proper manners at the Lord's Supper. Proper manners at the Lord's Supper. I would guess many of you can relate to the experience that I want to share with you from my days in junior high. Now, back in the day when I was in school, we didn't have middle school. We had junior high, which is now antiquated language. But when I was in junior high, there was a daily experience of going to the school cafeteria. And upon walking into the cafeteria, suddenly being confronted with the reality of sociological strata. What I mean by that is, as you walked into the cafeteria, holding your NFL lunchbox or brown bag, (laughs) you would survey the room, looking for a place to sit. Over to the right, over in this area over here, Actually, I don't remember where the areas were, but it fits the story. Over in this area over here was the cool section. These were the people that uh, attained a certain level of distinction that earned them the right to sit in that section. Now, for various reasons. If you were an incredible athlete, you could sit in the cool section. If you were unbelievably good-looking, you could sit in the cool section. If you were dating somebody who was unbelievably good-looking, you could sit in the cool section because now you're cool too, just by association. These were the, uh, these were the top dogs. These, this is the top of the food chain. They were the haves to, to my have-nots. They were the winners of the DNA lottery. These were the bold and the beautiful. This was the top of the cafeteria over there. Similar to the auditorium I see in front of me, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) On the other side of the cafeteria (laughs) were what in my school were called the grits. And the grits were like the antithesis of the cool people. Because these were the people who did not care about cool. Had no interest in cool. They were non-cool. Which to them was actually very cool. To be non-cool. These were the kids who... uh, were countercultural. They were rebelling against cultural norms. They uh, were notorious for nefarious activities that they were involved in, all of which circulated like madfire through the wildfire, madfire, wildfire, through the entire school about things that they were involved in. We weren't sure, but they probably were carrying some kind of a weapon on them of some kind or something that would alter their sense of reality. Uh, when uh, burned and inhaled, or something like that, and they just had—they were—they were like dangerous. You didn't know what they were all about, but something bad was about to explode from that group of people at any time. Now, between those two groups were the hoi polloi. 
the bourgeois, the average Joes and Janes who were not cool enough to sit in the cool section and who were, who were not non-cool enough to sit in the non-cool section, we just sat in there with everybody else in the middle. No distinction whatsoever. We were the hoy, the hoy polloi. And sat there, uh, by the way, I was, <laughs> I was uh, perhaps thinking as I thought about the congregation that probably most of you sat in the middle of the cafeteria with me, along with the band and the uh, chess club and <laughs> the student council treasurer who always was there in the middle. That's us, all right? So as I describe that, what I'm saying is long before I could define sociology or give a definition of a caste system, I experienced what it's like to feel division, to feel sociological groupings, which I may or may not fit in, may or may not rise to. That was my junior high cafeteria. And that's the world that we live in to this day, isn't it? I mean, we can resent it, we can fight against it, but we end up conforming to it. This world has certain unwritten rules about who's who and what's what and the, the, the haves and the have-nots and all the rest. That is the world that we live in. Here's the question. What if the same dynamics are at work in a church? What if the same kind of sociological strata, a caste system, is at play within a group of people who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ? What, what would that mean? And why would it make the, whole, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul so upset? That is what we come to now in what is some of the strongest language in all of the Bible in terms of condemnation has to do with these kinds of little subgroups in a church, especially when they come to the Lord's Supper. So that is what we're talking about today. And we are in 1 Corinthians 11. If you're not there yet, you can get there in your Bibles. And I would like to read for you our text, and then we will explain it, and then we will apply it, because that's what we do here. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? I love that word right there. You see it? The Apostle Paul's like, what? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. 
And you can see that the rest of chapter 11 is all about the Lord's Supper. We're going to have three messages in this uh, remaining portion of the chapter. But here's what's going on. Remember, the city of Corinth, we talked about the city of Corinth when we began this series and how uh, it's kind of like a combination of Las Vegas and New York City together. Very wealthy, lots of commerce, very sinful. Uh, They would say things like, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. I don't know, but it kind of fits the story. That's what it was like. It was a city of, of great disparities and contradictions as well because you had people who were very wealthy and who had made a lot of money off of all of the commerce there. But then there were, there were, there were I don't know how many slaves, but there were tons of slaves in the city as well who had nothing, possessed nothing. They were actually possessions themselves. So that was the city of Corinth. Paul goes to the city of Corinth, begins to preach the gospel. People respond to the gospel. A church is formed, and that church is a slice of the Corinthian culture. They have all those same groupings from the city now at play within the congregation. There were some rich people in the congregation. There were some... uh, We call middle class kind of people in the congregation. And there probably were a lot of poor people in the congregation as well. Now, can that create problems in a church? When you have these kinds of groups and if people are viewing themselves through the the lens of their own wealth or income or lack thereof, can that create problems? Have you heard of the French Revolution? (laughs) So... You sat in the middle. We were the ones that studied, okay? So you should know what I'm talking about. The grits have no idea what I'm talking about. And, and the cool people, I'd like to think, have no idea what I'm talking about either. Just because I resent them. But anyway, uh, <laughs> that can create problems. Now, as we talk about the Lord's Supper, here's, I just want to ask this question. Because we've been learning about this church I feel like I've gotten to know the people of the church, the dynamic of the church. I feel kind of like, okay, you've messed up everything else. Certainly, you're not going to mess up the Lord's Supper. I mean, this is like the most precious gift. It is communion with Christ. You can pull this off. I mean, this one you can get right, can't you? And the answer is no. They cannot. They even messed up the Lord's Supper. So, Let me just very quickly tell you about the Lord's Supper and the other ordinance of the church, which is baptism. We believe there are two ordinances in the church. Um, Baptism, which I talked about earlier in the service, uh, is a picture. It is a picture of personal transformation that Jesus Christ has brought to me. I go under the water in death. I come out of the water to newness of life. It is a picture of being made alive, of being born again, as Jesus said in John 3. It doesn't make you born again. It pictures it. And Jesus told us that we, were to, we are to baptize people, so we do it. The other ordinance of the church is the Lord's Supper. And this was instituted by Jesus the night that he was betrayed there in the upper room. So this is the last the last free moments that Jesus had with his disciples, and they are participating in the Jewish Passover meal. And during that meal, Jesus takes two components of the meal, bread and wine, and he 
transforms them into a new thing. Because he has come now fulfilling everything that the Passover represented. The, 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 the sacrificial lamb, the Paschal lamb is about to be sacrificed. It is Jesus on the cross once for all. There is no need to do the Passover anymore. He now is the Passover. And this new meal, this new feast, involves bread that represents his body being broken and a cup, wine, we use juice, which represents his blood that was shed for us. And Jesus said that you are to do this in remembrance of me. So guess what we've done now, the church, for 2,000 years? We have participated in this very simple but very elegant and profound remembrance of what Jesus did. It is one of the ordinances of the church, and we will do this, Paul writes in this chapter, until he returns. We will not have communion in heaven. It's something for now. Then we'll be with him. We don't need a kind of bread cup thing to be sort of there. We are with him physically. Now, to understand the problem that's going on in the church at Corinth, uh, you have to understand how they participated in the Lord's Supper. Different, different than us. So let me tell you about what they called the agape feast. The agape feast. And we get a glimpse into how they did the Lord's Supper in Acts chapter 2. And I have it here on the screen. Notice what it says. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. If you went in a time machine back to the first century, got out of the time machine and said, I want to have the Lord's Supper, this is how they would have, uh, this is how they would have steered you. Well, Notice what they did. They gathered together in the temple. This was their large gatherings for the teaching of the apostles. Then they went into their homes and they broke bread, which is uh, speaking of the ceremony of the Lord's Supper. But it wasn't just that. Notice they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So they had a meal and they had the Lord's Supper together. This was known, this became known in the early church as the agape meal, the agape feast. Agape is the Greek word for love, the love meal, the love feast. It was a common meal that would be eaten. And then at the end of the meal, they would take bread and the cup and they would participate in a component at the end of the meal of the Lord's Supper. So did you get that? Meal, Lord's Supper, together. At least through the end of the first century, that is how the church did it. Sometime after that, they separated that out. And here we are now, as a result of that, the way that we participate in Lord's Supper is we have it in our services, not in a meal. And uh, we only do the bread and the cup, which maybe is something that has has been lost. Because the meal really served two very important functions. One was just simply to satisfy hunger. Guess what? First century people, they got hungry. We've done lots of studies and research, and I've come to the conclusion that first century people, they got hungry. And so to get together and to have a meal met that need. You all are going to do that in like two hours. Probably. Uh, So the second thing that it did was that it promoted a sense of brotherhood, sisterhood, family love within 
the congregation. And I think that you know how this happens. There's something about eating a meal with people, and even more in the first century, it was that way. That's why Jesus says in Revelation, uh, behold, I come to the door and knock. If a man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with him, and I will sup with him. I will dine with him. What he is saying there is that unique relationship that is developed by having a meal with somebody. That's what I want to have with you. And isn't that the case? When you sit around a table with other Christians and you have a shared meal, you're eating the same food, you're sitting at one table, you get talking about life and, and, and your family and whatever, but then as Christians it gets around to matters of faith and ministry and church and, and all the rest, prayer requests, pray for one another. There's something about Christians having a meal together that really knits our hearts together in a very profound way and having fun too by the way in in meals that's another important part of christian dining there ought to be a lot of laughter at a christian meal i was with some uh, people this week from our church and uh, maybe 10 of us and we're sitting at this table and of course i felt the need to um, try out my standard um, jokes uh, at the table and I told two of them, one of which they thought was mildly funny, and the other one um, went flat. And so I have to begin explaining why it's funny, you know, which then made it hilarious for everybody because it was such a dismal failure. And so um, we laugh and on you go, and it's just a very nice time. That's what that meal did. It, it promoted a sense of community within the church because the church would get together and they would have this big just chow time and talk time. And it sounds nice, doesn't it? Okay. Second service, they're going to be more hungry than you are. They're going to be like, yeah, that sounds great. I'd love it right now. But it does. The agape meal. Let me walk you through how they did it. And this will lead to why it was a problem in Corinth. Here's how they did it. Some of you right now are probably thinking to yourself, well, of course we know how they did it. There was a time set and they all went gathered at the church and they had a meal together. Nope. There were no church buildings in the first century. They didn't gather, you know, this whole thing that we have right now in the comfortable seats that you're in in the parking lot that we got. This is a modern development. The church didn't have them until the third century. They started building buildings. So the church met in the homes of wealthier people who would have larger homes and be able to accommodate uh, a, a gathering of people. So there would be a, a time set. We're, we're, we're meeting at the Joneses. You all know where that's at. And everybody would bring then some food and it would be compiled there. This is essentially the agape meal was a church potluck. Or as they say in southern Indiana, pitch-ins. You ever heard that? Yeah. Everybody pitch in, so we'll call it a pitch in. Where does pot luck come from? Pot, which we're not for that. Luck, which we don't believe in. We'll call it that. I don't know. Where do these things come from? But it was essentially a church potluck. And so the rich people would, prob- would be bringing more because they had more ability to, to bring that. The poor would bring less or some of them probably nothing at all. And 
they would meet together in these homes. Now, these homes were, this is in the Mediterranean, so not our climate, think more like Florida. And they would have an outer, like, courtyard area, and then they would have kind of the inside area. In the inside area, there was a room known as the triclinium. And the triclinium was essentially the dining room. So typically, when the family was just by themselves, they would eat in that room. Those rooms were not big enough for all of these people to sit in or to eat in. So they would eat in the open courtyard area. So can you see this in your mind? You set up, there's tables set up, there's food set up, and they would, they would gather in the courtyard talking, it's time to eat, somebody would pray, give thanks, they would go through the line, they would eat together, they would then take the bread and the cup and let's remember our Lord now and they would do that and have a wonderful time, slaps on the backs, hugs and kisses, out the door, a great night for the church. That's the way that they did it. Again, how do you mess that up? Most churches in America can pull off a church potluck. I mean, it's like, if you're a church, you can potluck. But the church at Corinth, they found a way to mess up the church potluck in the Lord's Supper. How did they, how did they do it? Well, we begin now in verse 7. It says, but in the following instructions, Paul writes, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. It was so bad, the church potluck Lord's Supper experience, the agape meal was so bad, Paul says, you would be better off not doing them. When you get together, there is more damage that is done than good. In fact, he says in verse 20, when you come together, get this, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. Now, I want everybody to see that. The reason is, did you know that it is possible to take the Lord's Supper without taking the Lord's Supper? That you can turn that very meaningful, special, reverent, communal experience into a ritual that Jesus doesn't show up for and does us no spiritual good. You can drink juice all day long. You can eat bread all day long. And it's not the Lord's Supper. If what the church of Corinth was doing is what we're doing. Which leads to the question, then, what is the church of Corinth doing? Well, let's get into that now. I'd like to help us all understand how to take the Lord's Supper without actually taking the Lord's Supper. First of all, we see when they got together, they got together with division in the church. Look at verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Greek word there for divisions, schismata. Schismata. Does that sound like an English word that you know? And the answer is Well, this is where, this is where junior high vocab is very important. Perhaps it was all the lunches I skipped so I could work on my vocab words that uh, gets me to the point of hearing schism in schismata. Do you hear it? 
schism, or some translations go with factions, divisions. There are, when you get together, you're not together. Do you hear that? When you come together, you are not together. Did you know that it's possible to be in close proximity with people and to not actually be together with them? We can be close and miles apart. Sound like your recent family reunion, uh, probably. Where we can be in the same room, we could be sitting at the same table, and relationally and attitudinally, we are miles apart. There is division in the relationship. That's what's going on here. He says in verse 18, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And I could, we could talk a lot about this point. I just want to make this very thing, the little point here. Not all division is bad. Sometimes there has to be division in order for the genuine, or as the the Greek word there for genuine means approved, those who are approved by God can rise to the surface and those that are divisive or are fleshly, ungodly, wicked, whatever it might be, as Jesus said, their fruit can be shown as well. And when there is tension and when there is conflict, it reveals heart issues, doesn't it? And sometimes... These things are necessary for those who are actually approved by God to be revealed. But that's not so much what's going on here. It is division. They were together, but they weren't any more together than my junior high cafeteria was together. We were not together in junior high. So why is Paul so upset That the church at Corinth or these individual Christians would come and take, here's the issue now, come and take the Lord's Supper with division. Why is he like, what are you doing? Well, it has to do with what the Lord's Supper is all about. And we're going to be developing a theology of the Lord's Supper over these uh, next several messages. But notice what Paul says in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Did you hear that? As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What is the Lord's Supper about? It is about the gospel. It means the gospel. It means the redemptive story of Jesus. It means his passion. It means his suffering. It means his guilt bearing. It means his pain. It means these things. It is the gospel on display. His body broken on the cross. His blood shed on the cross. It is the core of our faith. It also means the unity of the body of Christ. Congregationally, universal church, with our one risen Savior. You see, the Lord's Supper is about oneness. There is, there is one cup. There is one loaf. There is one church. There is one Savior. And when we come together with the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating oneness. And that's why it is sometimes called communion. 
We are communing with our risen Savior, and we are in communion with one another as we do it. So, since that is what the Lord's Supper means, for a church to come to the Lord's table with division, with schismata, is to say the opposite of what the Lord's Supper is saying. It is to lie. Say it that way. It is a lie when a church says that we are one with the bread and the cup, but relationally is unwilling to unite. You see, the the Lord's Supper, it's about love. It is celebrating the love of Jesus Christ, not hate. It is celebrating forgiveness. It is not celebrating grudges. It is celebrating unity, not division. And Paul's going to say in verse 30 that these kinds of attitudes at the Lord's Supper is why some of you are sick and actually why some of you have died. Now that's a pretty strong thing, don't you think? Apparently God takes this far more seriously than most of us do. I think if we understood this, a lot less of us would take the Lord's Supper. It is far better not to take it when there is unresolved conflict in relationships with my brothers and sisters than to take it and to lie to God. Don't do that. Better to let it pass. I think about just an easy example would be a married couple who fights like the Dickens all the way to church. Walks into the church. Ah. <laughs> oh, we're having the Lord's Supper today. Okay, great. Huh? And they're sitting next to each other, but they are miles apart. Far better for the man to say, you know what, honey? Let's resolve our issues before we partake in this together. Let's not say something spiritually that is not true relationally. So the Lord's Supper in that way, it is a spiritual meal. And we're going to talk about that more in a future message. But it is also a spiritual checkup. It is an opportunity for us to be reminded of the gospel in terms of my vertical relationship with God. But also my horizontal relationships with my brothers and sisters which are vitally important in God's eyes as well. And I will tell you, I have not always fulfilled this. Um, I remember some time ago, I was actually leading a communion service here at Bethel, and as I held the cup and the bread, which to me is always a tender moment. I don't know about you, but there's something about um, holding them that is somehow makes you think, you know. And just kind of spiritually gets, it's, in, it's enriching. So anyway, I was holding that cup and bread and I felt my conscience twist. And I thought about a relationship that I had allowed to languish a bit and wasn't healthy like it ought to be. 
And that experience compelled me to chase him down outside of the church after the service was done and to say, we need to talk. And I'm glad for that. The Lord's Supper gets us there. And it needs to get us there. Because that's the truth of what it represents. And if that's not the case, I would encourage you not to partake. Go make peace with your brother or sister. Or as Paul writes in Romans 12, as far as it depends on you, dwell at peace with all men. We're, not, we're, not, we're never going to have no conflict in our life, but we shouldn't be the cause of the conflict. And we should be seeking to be peacemakers. So divisiveness, when we come to the table and we're divisive, that's not, you're not taking the Lord's Supper. You're just drinking, you're drinking juice. You can do that all day. You're just eating bread, little wafer. You can eat those all you want. Jesus isn't showing up. It's not the Lord's Supper. The second thing that we see here, and this was the actual problem beyond the divisiveness, is that they were coming to the Lord's table with snobbery. With snobbery. Now remember, who hosts, who hosts the meal? It was the who? The rich people, right? It was the rich people, the rich Christians in the church who had the house that could hold that many people. Now look at verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Now here's what was happening. The rich people were gathering together prior to the start time. They were bringing their food in. They were gathering together. They had their own little group there. And so the table is filled with food. And one time somebody goes, you know, I'm kind of hungry. Why do we got to wait for all these other people? I mean, we're here. We're friends. There's food. Let's just get going with this thing. What did you think? Probably a deacon. Anyway, uh... <laughs> anyway, so they start eating. They fill their plates. They sit down in the triclinium, the little, the, the cool room where the cool people were and had a little private, we're rich and we're better than you kind of time of eating. So much so that when everybody else showed up, the slaves, the poor, the middle class, there they are in the courtyard and they're like looking in and they're seeing that there's no food on the potluck table and the rich people are all inside the special space and they're eating and drinking and getting drunk and having a high time while these people are hungry and there's no food to eat. Which made them go, what's going on? And to resent the actions of these folks. Which was sad. Paul says, the result of this is that they feel humiliated. They were humiliating the poorer and creating a schismata in the church. Which Paul says is despising the church of God. Now, where do these attitudes come from, where we think that we're better than others or superior to others? Let me illustrate it this way. Without raising your hands, I'm just going to ask the question, if uh, any of you have ever flown first class. Don't raise your hand. Okay, just asking the question. I have on a few occasions, but I've never paid for it, so that shouldn't surprise anybody. Um, I... (laughs) If you fly very much, you end up, you know, they overbook and there's an upgrade or you sit here or fine. So I've just had a few, there's been a couple times where I've found myself in first class. And I got to tell you, it's kind of nice. 
I mean, you sit down, and right away, flight attendant's there, and you have a special menu that the rest of the people don't have, you know, and you can get drinks before the, the flight even goes off. Here's a little towel to wipe your brow, especially an international flight. It's really awesome. And uh, so the few occasions that I have had in first class, again, that I have not paid for or deserved to be at, I have found, strangely, in my heart, a attitude that subtly begins to develop. I want, I want a Wall Street Journal when I'm there. Because I want to stare at the Wall Street Journal while everybody else walks by. Back to the cattle car area. Where the riffraff sit. And I have this sense in my heart, it's strange, but it just does something. It comes over you where, where I'm kind of like, let's keep moving, people. Let's keep moving. Please don't stare. I know you wish you were me, but you're not. Keep going. Keep going. Move along. And of course, what's so sad about that is that I don't deserve to be there. It's some miracle when I find myself there. Who of us deserves a seat at the Lord's table? You may now identify yourself. Can't buy your way there. Can't earn your way there. Can't talk your way there. Anybody who is at a seat, has a seat in the Lord's table, is there because of Jesus. The ticket required to sit there. Infinite righteousness. Who of us has that on our own? None of us. We are desperately wicked. And yet we find ourselves sitting at the banquet table of the king. How do you explain that? Christ has done it. He has accomplished it through his cross and his resurrection. So that now sinners like you and me can sit at the table. It's a joy. It It is a privilege. And the Lord's Supper. Here's the thing. The Lord's Supper is a reminder that I don't deserve to be here. Bread, a body that was broken on my behalf. The cup, blood that somebody else shed so that I can have a seat at the table. I don't deserve it. It is all grace. It comes by faith for all who will believe. And the Lord's Supper is intended to refresh that reality in my heart and to remind me I don't deserve any of this. It's all about Him and what He did for us. It reminds us of His generosity that He became poor to make others rich. That's us. It reminds us of his humility, that he made himself nothing. It reminds us of his sacrifice, that it is by his wounds that we are 
healed. And it is a picture to us that he was our neighbor. He loved us and treated us as we would wish somebody would treat us. And all of this is from him. And what it does in the church is it levels the field. It, it negates all of these social categories that we find in the world, but have no place in the church. Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one. You get it? One in Christ Jesus. The Lord's Supper celebrates oneness. We are one. There isn't a one of us that is any better than the rest of us. We are all sinners here. And so, this is why any sense of snobbery or a sense of superiority, noses up in the air, looking at other people, like the Pharisee in Jesus' story. I'm glad I'm not like the tax collector over there. I do this, I do this, I do that. That attitude has no place at the Lord's Supper. It is the antithesis of what it actually means and what it represents. Snobbery. In this case, it was wealth snobbery. It goes beyond that. How about, uh, how about denominational snobbery? Me? I'm a Presbyterian. That's right. I'm better than you. Because you're a Methodist. God don't like Methodists. Loves the Presbyterians. And you can swap those tags around. I just pick those at random. Is that common? You bet it is. How about theological snobbery? My system is better than your system, which means that I am better than you. Come and worship. Is that common? You bet it is. How about local church snobbery? Where do I go to church? I go to Bethel Church. You heard me, Bethel Church. You wish you could go too, I know. We love the pastor there. (laughs) Friends, what do we have that we've not received? Nothing. This is all of God's grace. And we have a responsibility not to just affirm that, have it in our doctrinal statement, but to live that out relationally and horizontally. Because when I realize that I am a sinner saved by grace, now I am in a position to look at the other sinner who is ticking me off or is mistreating me or I don't like or did something to me in the past and rather than to look at them and say I am better than you to say I am the same as you which positions me now to love them and to serve them and to forgive them and to be one with them and to let them through the potluck line first And if there's anything that points us to that truth, it is when we take the bread and we take the cup.
and we look at them. And we just say, God's grace. God's grace. And the Lord's Supper calls us to that kind of a sense of brotherhood and unity at the table like nothing else does. So relational unity, gospel oneness, Christian charity, those are the proper manners at the Lord's table.